Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. Aren't you thankful for the presence of God today? And that nothing can separate us from His love. No height, no depth, no principality, no power. Nothing can separate us from His love. I'm thankful for that song. Thank you, worship team, for teaching us that song this morning. There is another in the fire. And uh, what a powerful promise that we can claim today, that no matter what you're going through, that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that's a promise that we can claim today. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. Are you ready for a great day in God's house? All right, about half of you are. So the other half, hopefully we'll get there. We'll get there. Maybe when tri-tip comes out, then smiles will start to start to happen. All right. Anybody ready for tri-tip this morning? Yeah. All right. It's like Jesus, tri-tip, you know, like where are we at this morning? And uh, looking forward to a great day. And uh, you can go ahead and find a seat. Thank you so much for being here today. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. And uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther chapter number six. And we have been in a series the last several weeks that we've been calling, Where is God? And a lot of times in life, we wonder and we ask that question, where is God in the midst of my hurting? Where is God when I'm in the fire? Where is God when there's a storm that is surrounding me? And we're coming to the book of Esther because God is not mentioned in Esther, but we see him working throughout the book and throughout the narrative. We see God, uh, his hand at work. And that's really an incredible story of God's sovereignty and God's timing uh, all throughout the book of Esther. And Esther chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. And we come to a very crucial and important uh, part of the narrative. And uh, we saw last week that uh, Esther, who was a Jewish girl uh, being raised in Persia, she actually became queen. And, and while she was queen, there was a decree of death that went out because there was an evil man named Haman and he wanted to uh, kill all of the Jews, which was um, Esther's people. And so Esther now had this opportunity to go before the king and to uh, plead on behalf of her people and to ask the king, will you save these people? Will you not kill them? And so uh, she uh, went before the king and she says, will you come to a banquet that I'm having? And so the king agrees and he comes to the banquet, he comes to the party. And uh, you think in the story that Esther is going to ask the king there at the party, will you uh, deliver my people? Will you save my people? But she doesn't ask. In fact, she says, will you come to another party that I'm having tomorrow night? And we're kind of thinking, you know, why is she doing this? Why is she taking uh, all of this time? And that's where we ended last week, kind of a cliffhanger. Is she going to ask ask Xerxes, Ahasuerus, this king? Is she going to uh, uh, plea uh, for her people? And that's uh, where we left off. And something very interesting and very powerful happens that night uh, before that second party, before the second party that Esther was going to go before Xerxes and before she was going to ask uh, for freedom for her people. Something interesting happens that very night that changes everything. And I want to bring a message today that I'm calling while you were sleeping. Everybody look to your neighbor and say, while you were sleeping. Say it kind of creepy this time. Look to your other neighbor and say, while you were sleeping. Now that we're all uncomfortable, let's go to God's word. Esther chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. If you're ready for God's word, would you say amen? 
Aren't you thankful that God's word is perfect, it's infallible, it's inspired, it's preserved for us today? I'm thankful for that. Esther 6, verse number 1. The Bible says this, On that night, everybody say that night, could not the king sleep? And he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, you remember a couple of weeks ago, those were the guys that were up to no good, started making trouble in the neighborhood, right? Uh, those were the bad guys. Two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. So these guys were trying to kill King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? And then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, there is nothing done for him. Nothing, king. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court, and the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to honor more than to myself? Haman's like, This is about me. I want to pause right there. We'll finish the rest of the chapter, but for sake of time, we'll stop right there this morning. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll jump into the rest of these verses today. Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. And God, thank you for the worship that has directed our hearts and attention to you. And God, I pray that for the next few minutes, we will be able to uh, really dive into Esther chapter 6. And God, I pray that we would see your uh, sovereign hand at work. And, and uh, God, I pray that we can glean some truths and some principles that we can apply to our lives today. God, I pray that ultimately these verses would point us ahead to Jesus and that we would uh, see Jesus come alive in Esther chapter number 6. And, and uh, God, I pray that uh, we can uh, have your Holy Spirit illuminate this text for us today and that we can leave here with hearts of understanding of what it is that you would have us uh, glean from our time together. And uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. How many of you would consider yourself to be a sound sleeper? Can I see your hands? A sound sleeper. How many of you would say, I'm opposite. I'm a, I'm a light sleeper. Anybody like that? Okay. Uh, this, uh, just a couple of nights ago at our house, um, I had just fallen asleep and just getting ready uh, to go to bed. And I just fell asleep. And all of a sudden I heard this, this scream coming from our, our daughter's room uh, across the hall. And I jumped up and, and uh, Katie had already beat me and she was already running in to check on what was going on over there. And, and uh, we found our youngest daughter, uh, Blakely, and she had taken essential oils that she had found and she had poured them in her eyes. And so, so she was screaming, her eyes were burning and, and I'm kind of, I just fell asleep and I'm trying to wake up and, and uh, Blakely's screaming and Katie's grabbing Blakely and she's yelling at me and she's saying, go get olive oil, go get olive oil. And I'm like, why do we need olive oil? Like, like oils is what got us into this mess. Why do we need more oils? You know, and, and I didn't have any idea, I guess. I guess apparently olive oil is the only natural diffuser for these types of oils. And so this is uh, supposed to take the burning and the stinging away. And so uh, Blakely's screaming and Katie's yelling at me, go get olive oil. And I'm like, where's the olive oil? You know, so I'm like downstairs looking in all our drawers and cabinets trying to find olive oil. And uh, finally we got the olive oil. We went upstairs and, and uh, we're rubbing olive oil all over Blakely's face and over her body, you know, trying to get this sting and burn. Uh, sensation off of her. 
And thankfully, it didn't take too long before that olive oil to kick in, and uh, the, pain was, uh, the pain was taken away. But our night of sleep was definitely uh, interrupted. And I was reading this week that the Center for Disease and Control, they say that uh, for adults, the average amount of sleep that you should get on a nightly basis is about seven hours of sleep. And uh, all the moms with young toddlers and babies, they laugh at that, and they say that would be a dream come true, right? Uh, seven hours of sleep. And we come to Esther chapter 6, and it's a very interesting passage, and sleeping has much to do with Esther chapter 6. It's the most important and crucial junction in the narrative up until this point. And we saw last week that Haman is furious with uh, Mordecai. He wants to kill Mordecai, and he now no longer wants to wait until all of the Jews will die, but now he wants to take matters into his own hands even further, and he wants to kill Mordecai the very next day. He can't stand Mordecai. He hates Mordecai, and so he says, I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm not going to wait till this decree is fulfilled. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to kill Mordecai. And so he makes these gallows where he would essentially crucify uh, Mordecai there because he hated him so much. And this is very dangerous for uh, Esther and for Mordecai because they have no idea that this plot is unfolding. In fact, while, while Haman is planning all this and while Haman is up all night and he's, he, he's worried about this and he wants to kill Mordecai, Mordecai and Esther are sleeping. Esther's sleeping somewhere in the palace. Mordecai is sleeping somewhere in Persia. And while all this is unfolding, they are completely unaware. They are completely unconscious to what is taking place. They couldn't do anything because they were sleeping and had no idea uh, what was going on. And I believe that the author, the human author of the book of Esther, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to point out to us that what is about to happen has nothing to do with Esther and Mordecai, but everything to do with the sovereignty of God. Because Esther and Mordecai are sleeping, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't uh, hear about this plot, and Esther couldn't say, oh, oh, Mordecai is going to die, so let me put on the royal apparel, let me go before the king, and let me uh, request that Mordecai's life can be saved. She couldn't do that because she didn't know. She was sleeping. Mordecai didn't know that he was about to die that day, and so he couldn't uh, get out of town and, and uh, get out of Dodge and try to just sneak away before anybody found him. He didn't know either. And so this whole narrative, they're sleeping. In fact, the most important chapter up until this point in the book of Esther, Esther chapter number six, and Esther and Mordecai don't even say a word. And so what we're learning in this chapter is that it's really not about how great Esther and Mordecai, but really about how great our God is, and that our God is sovereign, and that our God is still in control. And even when we are unaware, and even when we are unconscious, that God is still good, and his grace is still active, and his grace is still available. See, it wasn't about what Esther and Mordecai could do. It was about what God could do, and so this highlights the grace of God. Is not this the grace of God, that God gives us undeserved favor, that it's not about what we can do, but about what he can give us? The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 11, verse number 6, and if by grace, then it is no more, everybody say no more, then it's no more of works. Uh, otherwise, grace is no more grace. And so if you had to work for it, if you had to earn it, then grace is no more grace. And so here's Esther and Mordecai. They couldn't earn it. They were sleeping. Uh, they were unaware. I love what the Bible says in Psalm 121, verse number three. It says, he will not suffer thy foot to be moved. Speaking of the power of our God, uh, he that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, everybody say behold. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And so even when Mordecai and Esther were sleeping, uh, God was not sleeping. And I just want to remind you today that our God does not take a day off. He does not take a vacation. He does not fall asleep on the job. He is always awake for your sake and for my sake. He is always active. He is always aware. Even when we are unconscious and can do nothing, our God can still do everything. 
And so in this chapter, we're learning that God is in control. Esther and Mordecai, they're sleeping, but God is working. Uh, Esther and Mordecai, they, they, they don't even know the danger that's pending. They don't even know the danger that's looming over them, but God is working all the while. I love what Mary Crowley said. She said, every evening I turn my worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyways. And when we come to understand this truth that God is always working, it will produce in us a peace that we've never experienced before. Because then all of a sudden, our, our worry and anxiety is diminished, and our faith and our trust is increased, and we start to trust that God is working even when we are unaware of the danger that's coming in our direction. And so this morning, what I'd like to do as we look to Esther chapter number 6 is I'd like to just see three simple ways that God is actively working. Uh, three ways that God is working in this narrative, but three ways that God is working in your life and in my life today. Are you ready? Number one. Number one, God is actively working through the mundane. God is actively working through the mundane. And what we see first in the story is that Xerxes, king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world, he is unable to sleep. Notice verse number one. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And so uh, this particular night, uh, in God's timetable, in God's sovereignty, the king, Xerxes, he just happens to not be able to sleep. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's got a lot of people under him. He's got a lot of things to worry about, a lot of things to think about. And so he uh, is having some trouble sleeping. He's tossing and turning. And so what does he do? He says, somebody go get me that book of the chronicles and read me the book of chronicles. Uh, in this time, in this culture, they would dictate and they would write down kind of the events under the king so the king could go back and kind of see uh, what's happening in his kingdom. And so he says, you know what? I can't sleep. I need to find the biggest and most boring book that there is so someone can come and read me this book so I can fall asleep. Uh, you can ask Katie sometimes when I'm having trouble sleeping, I have this particular uh, preacher commentary set on my phone. And when I'm having trouble sleeping, I'll get it out and I'll just start reading that until my phone falls on the floor and I fall asleep and, and uh, it helps me fall asleep. And so that's what we see Xerxes doing. He's like, I can't sleep. Uh, get me a big, boring book and uh, and uh, let's read that uh, to me. Now notice verse number two. Not only do we see that Xerxes is unable to sleep, but then we learn that Mordecai was unrewarded for his, for his actions. Notice verse two. And it, it was found uh, written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand uh, on the king Ahasuerus. And so as they're reading this, because he can't sleep, he, he reads about uh, this man Mordecai, this Jewish man Mordecai, that actually saved his life. There was two other guys that wanted to kill him, and Mordecai saved his life. And he's learning about this late at night when he can't sleep. And so verse number three says this. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said uh, the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And so Xerxes can't sleep. He reads this big, boring book. He learns that this man Mordecai saved his life. And then he asks his servants, hey, what happened uh, with this man Mordecai? Did we ever honor him? In Persian culture, they wanted to foster a community of loyalty. And so they would have a reward system. In fact, uh, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Xerxes' brother was uh, having an assassination attempt on his life. And there were some guys that kind of spoiled that attempt. And since they saved the king's brother's life, they got to become the governor uh, there in Persia. And so if you got to become the governor uh, for saving the king's brother's life, then you would certainly think that you would get rewarded for saving the king's life. And so uh, this was common in Persian culture. And the king says, what did we do for Mordecai? And they say nothing. 
And now years have passed since Mordecai had done this good deed, but now he's finally being remembered. He's finally being brought back into the light. Imagine Mordecai for years thought, man, I did good and I never got rewarded. I did good, I never got promoted, but now he's being remembered. And I just want to encourage you today that God has not forgotten about you. And you may have been thinking, you know, I've been doing good and I've been serving and no one's recognized me. No one has affirmed me, but I just want to encourage you that God sees, he knows it all, and he has not forgotten about you for one minute and he will reward you according to his timetable. See, uh, the law of harvest in scripture applies both to the evil and to the good. The law of harvest, uh, you will reap what you sow. And, and uh, you know, that applies to evil. You know, be sure your sin will find you out. If you are sowing seeds of evil, you will reap the fruit of evil. But if you are sowing the seeds of righteousness, you will reap the fruit of righteousness. And that's what uh, the Bible tells us in First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 8 says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward. Everybody say reward according to his own labor. And so it might not be according to your timetable, but I just want to encourage you today to keep on sowing even when you're not seeing. Hey, keep on sowing the seeds of a God-honoring marriage and keep on being faithful to God's house. Keep on being faithful uh, in giving of the tithes and offerings. Keep on encouraging your neighbor. Keep on being faithful at work. Even when you're not seeing, keep on sowing because in due season you shall reap if you faint not. So you got to keep on sowing even when you're not seeing. Here's Mordecai. Years have passed, but now all of a sudden the king says, did we ever reward him? Did we ever do anything for Mordecai? See, it was all according to God's perfect timetable. And so we see that Xerxes, all of a sudden, he's unable to sleep. He remembers that Mordecai was unrewarded. But now I want you to see that Haman was unaware of God's timing. If you're with me, would you say amen? amen. Notice the next verse. And the king said, who is in the court? And so he's like, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? Did we ever reward him? And they said, King, we never did anything. And then he says, well, who's in the court? I need to get some advice on this, some counsel on this. Now Haman was coming to the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. And so the timing of this is just perfect, right? And uh, the timing of this is just so uncanny. And uh, here, right in the moment that King Xerxes says, you know what, we need to honor Mordecai. Here comes Haman rushing into the court. We need to kill Mordecai. And so this timing was not good, right? Uh, there was about to be a clash of, of interest here. And so we see that, that Haman comes in and he is unaware of, of God's timing. And what we're seeing here is that even though God is not mentioned in these first four or five verses, that his fingerprints are all over the story. There's one too many coincidences that are taking place. And really, coincidence is just a non-Christian word for providence, that, that God is in control. And see, this is the theme of the book of Esther. This is the theme, really, of this chapter, that sometimes God will move through his visible hand of miracles, but many times God will move through his invisible hand of providence. Sometimes God's going to move by doing something big, something miraculous, and seeing a miracle, and wow, this was great. But a lot of times God is orchestrating the scenes and orchestrating the details behind the scenes, working through his hand of providence. This is the idea of biblical providence, God's sovereignty. He's in control. Providence is much like uh, the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind, right? We know all about that in Fontana. Can I get a witness? Amen. I remember when we were first starting the church. 
uh, we wanted to go out and pass out thousands of flyers. And so uh, we went and we met right in front of Wayne Rubel Middle School. And uh, we invited a bunch of, bunch of people to come and, hey, let's go pass out flyers. And my sister came and, and uh, her husband, my brother-in-law, they brought their daughter. And it was a really windy Fontana day. And as soon as they got there, uh, their three-year-old daughter at the time got out of the car. And as soon as she got out of the car, literally the wind just blew her right over and she fell on the ground. I was like, welcome to Fontana. <laughs> let's go pass out some invites. But that is how uh, God's providence works. We can't always see what God is doing, but we can look back and see the effects of it. And so many times we think, well, that was a coincidence, when really that is God's providence. It just so happened that Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. It just so uh, happens that he read the book of Chronicles, which just so happened to detail the accounting of Mordecai saving his life, which just so happens that Haman was in the court. And God's timing throughout all of this is perfect. And we see his hand moving throughout the narrative that God is always working. He's always in control. I love what uh, Karen Job, she says about this passage. She says, our God is so great, so powerful that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night, because a man would not bow to his superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. And sometimes we're looking for God in the miraculous when God is working in the mundane. We want God to do something big. We want God to do something extraordinary. But God will often do the extraordinary through ordinary avenues and ordinary means. And so instead of maybe watching for the miraculous, watching for the monumental, start looking for God and how he's working in the mundane areas of life. In our 8 to 5, our, our jobs Monday through Friday, God wants to work in the details. God wants to work in the little things to accomplish big things for his glory. And so we see that God is working through the mundane. But we learned a second principle this morning that God is not only actively working through the mundane, he is actively working against pride. God is actively working against pride. Notice verse number 5. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Verse number six. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? And so this is just, again, bad timing. The king's like, Man, I need to honor Mordecai. And uh, how can I do this? And how do you think I should honor him? And, and Haman's thinking like, He's going to honor me. This is my moment. And Haman loved honor. Remember, he made it a law in previous chapters that you had to show him respect because he couldn't earn it uh, on his own volition. So he had to make it a law uh, that, that, that uh, uh, they would respect him. And so now he's thinking in his heart. See, uh, really, that's where pride and arrogance starts. It's in the heart. You say, I would never say that, but you might think it. Yeah. And see, long before pride is blossoming on the outside, it's taking root on the inside. And here is Haman, he's starting to think these thoughts. Well, man, he, surely he's going to talk about me. Surely I'm the one that he wants to honor. I mean, who else in this whole kingdom would he want to honor besides me? I'm his number two. The Bible says this in Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Can I just tell you that even if you've never said it, God knows the very thoughts and the intents of your heart? Here's Haman thinking to himself about how uh, surely I should be honored, but God knew his heart and thought all along. Romans 12, 3 says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of 
faith. And so we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. And that's exactly what we see uh, Haman doing here. And so then Haman says, okay, he thinks, you know, he's the one going to get honored. And so he has an idea or two about how this should uh, go about. And uh, what we read is, is so humorous uh, when you see that, that God's hand is all over this. And you see Haman start to say, I have, I have a suggestion. Here's my suggestion. Verse number seven. And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Here's my first idea, king. Let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear. And so the first thing he says is, we need to get this man uh, the king's apparel and king's garments. But not just any garments. We need, we need garments that the king has actually worn. We want a game-worn jersey. You know, we want, if you can sign it, Xerxes, that would be a bonus. And so uh, we need to get this man the, the king's uh, royal apparel, the ones that you've worn before. And the second idea that I have, king, uh, for this man that you want to honor is, is the horse that the king rideth upon. And so the second thing that I think we should do is we should get this man a royal uh, a horse from your kingdom, but not just any royal horse, king. Uh, we want a horse that, that, that you have uh, ridden, a horse that is yours, and not only a horse that you've ridden, king, but uh, just to kind of put the cherry on top, let's, let's add a crown royal, which is set upon his head. Let, let's put a crown on the horse's head. And so you can see Haman, he's really going overboard over the top. Like, we want the king's royal garments, we want one of the king's horses, and put a crown on the horse's head while you're at it. It's like, you know, it's getting out of control here. Uh, notice the next verse. And then he says, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of the one uh, of the king's most noble princes. And so then we need to get a noble prince who's going to kind of orchestrate this whole scene, king, uh, that they may array the man with, with whom the king delighteth to honor, next, next part of the verse 9, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And so essentially, king, my idea is to throw a parade for me. That was his idea. King's clothes king's horse with a crown on top, and parade him through the city. And so you can see that Haman struggled with a little bit of pride when he's thinking, you know what, the only thing that I want to be honored is just a parade. Is that too much to ask? Can I just get a parade throughout the city? And uh, I, think, I think that will do, king. What do you think about my idea? And so uh, Haman's going overboard uh, describing this scene. Now, uh, watch not only Haman's suggestion, but now watch his surprise in verse number 10. The king said to Haman, make haste. And so Haman's like, yes. And take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew. Can you imagine Haman's face? What? <laughs> like, what are you, Mordecai uh, the Jew? That's the one that I hate. I was just waltzing in here to tell you that I think we should kill him and crucify him on a stake that I have built outside. What am I going to do with that now? And that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. And so the king says, everything that you said to do, Haman, great idea. Let's do it. Don't, don't leave anything out. Make sure you see it through all the details. And so now there, there's this uh, big surprise, this big uh, reversal. Um, you may have seen uh, last year or a couple years ago, 2017, at the at the Oscars, uh, they were getting ready to uh, uh, present the Academy Award for the best film, and uh, they got out there getting ready to announce it, and they say, and the winner is La La Land. And so all the La La Land cast and producers and members come up there. Anybody see this? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they all come up there, and they're all giving their speeches. We want to thank God, and we want to thank you, and we want to thank our producers and family. And then someone's like, wait a minute. We read the wrong envelope. It was actually Moonlight who won the uh, Academy Award for Best Film. And so then uh, all the Moonlight people go up there, and it was this really awkward, embarrassing moment, and it was this great 
reversal. And what we see taking place in Esther chapter number six is a great reversal. In fact, one of the most um, ironic passages in all of scripture, one of the greatest reversals in all of scripture, because Haman is the one that so desperately wanted honor. He wanted affirmation. He wanted recognition. He wanted a parade. And notice what happens. Verse 11. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. And brought him on horseback through the street of the city, proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. I can't imagine he did it with a whole lot of enthusiasm, right? <laughs> this great reversal. But here's what I want you to see Haman was humiliated, but he was not humbled. He was embarrassed. He hated every second of this. He was humiliated, but that did not bring him to a place of humbling himself to repentance. And so we see that God is actively working against the proud. And this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible tells us in James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And so we know that this is God's heart. This is God's design. He's going to resist the proud, but he's going to give grace to the humble. And this is something that we need so desperately today in our church, in our generation, no matter young or old, we all need to strive towards humility. We all need to battle against pride because not one of us has arrived at humility. Humility is not something that, you know, pride is not something that we, we just say that we conquered. You know, it's not like, you know, I used to struggle with pride, you know, but, you know, I'm thankful today that I'm kind of out of that season now, and I'm kind of, I'm doing better, you know, like that statement would be proud, right? Like nobody uh, arrives at humility. Humility is not a destination. Humility is a direction. And so we all need to strive towards this. In fact, I love what one author, C.J. Mahaney, he says this, no one can ever say they're humble. All they could say is that they're a proud person pursuing humility by the grace of God. And so this morning, what are we learning? We're learning that God is he's actively working in the mundane. Even the smallest details of your life that you think are insignificant, God's hand is in those details. We're learning that God is actively working against pride. 1 Peter 5, verse number 5 says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so God is actively working against pride. And I want you to see what takes place in the next verse because I, as I was reading it this week, I found it so fascinating. Verse number 12. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate. Mordecai came again to the king's gate. I read that, I thought, that's so interesting because Mordecai just had perhaps one of the highest moments of his life. I mean, imagine being paraded through the city and everyone saying, wow, Mordecai, and they're showing him honor, and he's got a, he's got a horse with a crown on it, and he, you know, he's got it all. He has this unbelievable opportunity, this unbelievable moment, and then when it was done, back to the king's gate. What was the king's gate? That was the job that he had before he was honored. And so what does it mean? He had this great big moment where he got honor and people said, wow, look at, look at Mordecai, look at him. And then it was back to the mundane. <laughs> it was back to the King's Gate where he always worked. It was his regular eight to five. It was Monday morning, back to the King's Gate. And Haman could have used this as an opportunity to say, you know what? This is my chance. This is my opportunity. I'm going to leverage this. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to take the day off. I'm, I'm going to do something else. But he said, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my job. I'm going to go back to the mundane, back to the normal. And so often we get discouraged because we experience something great and then it's back to the king's gate. 
It's back to our job that we've done every day, and it's just mundane, and back to the routine, and back to the normal. But I believe it's when we decide and determine to be faithful in the mundane that God will advance us and promote us to the monumental. And so here is Mordecai, back to the king's gate, back to the normal. One author, Alexander Raleigh, he says this, a proud, ambitious man would have said to himself in reference to in reference to this moment. No more the king's gate for me. I shall direct my steps now to the king's palace and hold myself ready for honor, which surely must now be at hand. Mordecai seems to have said within himself, if these things are designed for me in God's good providence, they will find me, but they must seek me, for I shall not seek them. Those who confer with, uh, those who confer them know my address. Mordecai at the king's gate will still find me. Let the crowd wander and disperse. I have had enough of their incense. Let Haman go uh, whither he will. He is in the hands of the Lord. Let my friends at home wait. They will all hear uh, all in time. I can wait best at the old place and in the accustomed way at the king's gate. And I want to encourage you today, if you feel like, man, I'm at the king's gate. I'm at the uh, back to the normal, just the, 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 the routine of doing the same thing over and over and over again. I want to encourage you to be faithful because if you are faithful in little, God will uh, allow you to be faithful in much. And so here's Mordecai. He's just back at the king's gate. And Haman is angry, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. He's humiliated, but he's not humbled. And this brings us to our third and final thought this morning where we see God working. Number three, God is actively working to bring victory. God is actively working to bring victory. If you're still with me, would you say amen? amen. Notice verse number 12. But Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered, verse 13. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. And so Haman runs back home, and he's, he's angry now, and he's humiliated. He just had to go throughout the city parading Mordecai. That's the one that he just built gallows. He just built a, a stake to impale him on. And so he goes, and he tells his wife Zeresh and all of his friends these things. And it's interesting because now it's the second time in two chapters that we see Haman is kind of getting counsel and talking with his wife. And he might even have, you could say, he might even have a better relationship with his wife than Xerxes did. Xerxes didn't even talk to Esther for more than a month, more than 30 days. But here we see day after day that, that Haman is talking to his wife, and, and he, he brings his friends in. He talks to his friends in the last chapter. And so you could almost see how Haman could have convinced himself, like, hey, I'm a good family man. My friends like me. You know, people uh, generally respect me when I command for it. You know, he was talking to his wife, and it's, it's interesting how sometimes we can justify our sin because while Haman could have seen himself as just a good family man, meanwhile, he's planning on genocide, killing all of these people. So he goes home and he tells his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends all these things that have befallen him, and he has this little group that he runs back to. But notice their discernment at the end of verse 13. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews... Before, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. So Zeresh, his wife, just kind of lays it out. She's kind of honest, like, you're not going to win. <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, sometimes, you know, we want empathy, we want sympathy. Like, sometimes when I'm sick, I want to make sure that Katie knows how sick that I am, right? And so um, I'll, I'll explain all of my symptoms in detail to make sure that she has the full story because I want her to understand how sick I really am. And a lot of times she's just like, okay, you know, thanks. And here, Zeresh is like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your bad day, Haman. But here's the truth. 
You're kind of a loser. <laughs> You're not going to win. If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, now whether Zeresh, his wife, realized it or not, her theology was good. Because the Bible says, and God promised Abraham, and God had a promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 3, and I will bless them, speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And so whether Zeresh realized it or not, her theology was on point because she was starting to understand that, hey, we're never going to get victory over these people. You're never going to get victory over Mordecai. What she's starting to understand is God is always going to win. I love what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse number four. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. He is a God that will fight for us. And today, I don't know what battles you're facing. I don't know what uh, you find yourself in, where in the trenches you are. But I know this, we worship an undefeated king. Our God has never lost a battle. He never will lose a battle. He is always victorious. And that is the victory that we can claim today as well. And Zeresh is starting to realize, man, we're never going to win against these people because she's realizing that our God always wins. He always reigns. He is always victorious. And so today, no matter what you're going through, I just want to proclaim to you today, that our God will get the last word and that our God will reign forever as King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so she's starting to understand we're never going to win. But throughout this whole process, even though they realize we're not going to win, there's still no repentance. There's still no, let's change course. Let's do better. More, uh, Haman, he, you know, he was mourning, put the covering over his head, but he didn't repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so there's a difference between just feeling remorse and actually repenting. And here, there's no plan of repentance. There's no thought of recovery. And, and as you read this verse, it's pretty gloomy. There's no hope for the future. You're surely going to fall before him. That's not very encouraging. That's not what you want to hear when you need a little pep talk when you, pep talk when you come home. You know, you want something more encouraging. And she says, you're not going to win. And I want you to see today that this is exactly where our culture, our world finds itself. There's no plan of repentance. There's no real true way of recovery. There's no real hope for the future. It's maybe if I'm a good person and maybe if I can be good enough, then I'll get to heaven. And maybe if I'm kind of nice to people around me and, and there's a lot of maybes and a lot of uh, might haves, but there's not a whole lot of hope. But see, when Jesus came, who is our true and better deliverer, when Jesus came, he changes everything because through Jesus, now there is a plan of repentance. Now there is hope for forgiveness. Now there is a hope for the future. See, Jesus changes everything. And what was once lost and broken and desperate and no hope, Jesus brings life and victory and hope to an otherwise hopeless situation. Yesterday I was at, I was preaching at a funeral. And, you know, at times like those, you are reminded uh, how quickly life passes and it brings things into perspective. After the funeral, I went to the hospital and I prayed with uh, a man who was breathing his last, last breaths and, and both of those situations are heavy and you're, you're reminded about uh, the brevity of life. And in both of those circumstances, yesterday I read John chapter 14 verses one through three, which says this, let not your heart be troubled. 
you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. See, Jesus is our hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. In a hopeless world, Jesus comes along and says, hey, believe in me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You can have life after death. You can experience everlasting life. You can have a peace that passes all understanding. Hey, you can get victory over sin. You can have forgiveness of sin. It's not all hopeless like this situation. Why? Because Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Deliverer. And He is our hope that is an anchor for our soul. Jesus changes everything. And if you look closely, all throughout Esther chapter 6, we see Jesus. We compare and contrast Haman and Jesus. Haman plotted to kill all of God's people. But Jesus planned to die for all of God's people. Haman wanted his king to honor him publicly, but Jesus, our king, was willingly stripped and shamed publicly. Haman would not forgive one man for one thing, but our King Jesus will forgive anyone for anything. Haman planned to crucify his enemy, but Jesus planned to be crucified in the place of his enemies. Haman longed for a parade to his glory, but one day we long for a second coming of Jesus Christ where we will parade for his glory. See, Jesus is our greater deliverer. He is our savior. He is better in every single way. I read recently a quote by Warren Wiersbe, who recently went home to heaven and uh, a great Bible commentator and author. And uh, he said that how he was at a zoo and he went to the nocturnal exhibit in the zoo and he saw a sign that said this, while you are resting, nature is busily, busily at work helping to keep the balance of life stable. And see, we can see a sign like that and read that quote, and it reminds us that, hey, even while we're resting, even while we're sleeping, even when we're unconscious and could do nothing, that our God is busily at work, that our God is directing all of the details behind the scenes. There's never a moment when he's not in control. Not only while we were sleeping, but it even takes a step further than that, because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, even while we were dead in our sins, so while we were sleeping, but even worse than that, while we were dead in our sins, he hath quickened us. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." This is the greatest news in all the world today. See, in this chapter, Esther and Mordecai, they don't say a word. In this chapter at the beginning, Esther and Mordecai, they're sleeping. It wasn't about what they could bring to the table. It was all about God working out the details behind the scenes. And today, it's not about how great you can be. It's not about how much you can work. It's not about all the things that you can do and be religious and go to church and read the Bible and feed the poor, all those wonderful things. It's not about that. It's about the grace of God. And once the grace of God becomes alive in your heart, that will motivate you to want to live out those things and want to love your neighbor and want to feed the poor and want to do those things. But none of those things are a means to salvation. It's while we were sleeping, while we were dead in our sins, that Jesus made us alive by his grace. And maybe today you've walked into this room and you are sleeping spiritually. Maybe you are dead in your sins, and today I believe that Jesus can quicken you. He can make you alive again. He can give you a new life, out with the old, in with 
the new. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes together as we close. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.